Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle within us the fire of your love. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This week I read a devotional from my dear friend and clergy colleague, Reverend Cameron Trimble. It was from her weekly blog, and uh, it hit home with me. And I just want to share one short paragraph with you. Cameron wrote this. Let me state the obvious. Our theology, what we believe and say about God, shapes our politics. Look at the jihadist as an example. If you believe that God is an angry, vengeful God, then likely you will behave in angry, vengeful ways. If you believe that God has predetermined history and everything is meant to be, then you might feel justified staying silent in the face of violence, oppression, and injustice. If you believe God is active in our lives and a loving force for good in the world, then you likely behave in active, engaging ways that channel God's love into the world. Because we live in community. We shape our laws and social codes through the lens of what we believe about God and each other. Talking about religion and politics matters. Well, in today's reading, Jesus is in the thick of it. The thick of the conversation about religion and politics. And it matters. Or maybe I should say Jesus is at the end of it. Now, let me make a disclaimer here and remind you. In the scriptures we have been reading over the last three weeks, in the scripture we read this morning, Jesus is in conflictual conversation with religious authorities and governmental authorities. And Jesus is particularly in conflict with the Pharisees, who were the temple authorities of the day, and the Sadducees, who were the landed people of the day, and the Essenes, who were the spiritually correct people of the day, and the Zealots, who were intent on revolutionary violence to retake back their government. Jesus is in conflict with these folks in conversation in the temple. But Jesus is not in conflict with the people of Israel. Jesus' complaint is not with the Jews. And, and lo and behold, the Christian church across time and centuries has chosen to see that or make it that Jesus was in conflict with the Jews. That is not the case. And we have suffered mightily because of it. Uh, no, excuse me. The Jews of the world have suffered mightily because of it. So I just want to remind you that, that as we go through this, that is not Jesus' complaint. Jesus' complaint is about how the people with power and money and authority and control are not caring for the least and the last and the lost and the lonely. They are not caring for the marginalized and the oppressed, which is God's preference and which is God's politics. For those of us who realize the political importance of the story of Jesus, these passages we have been hearing over the last few weeks 
And today's scripture offer clear lessons for us. Jesus has come into Jerusalem like a king, riding on the back of a donkey with, with followers praising and shouting, Hosanna, have mercy. Hosanna, Lord, save us. Jesus has gone in and cleansed the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers. Jesus has had his authority challenged by the chief priest and the elders. Jesus responds by telling them that tax collectors and prostitutes will get into God's realm before they do. And alluding to a passage about a vineyard that is talked about in the book of the prophet Isaiah, Jesus calls the Jerusalem elite wicked tenants because they have been more preoccupied with propping themselves up than in caring for God's people and God's creation. Jesus then uses the story of a wedding banquet to describe these religious elites as bullies who had originally been invited to the wedding and then refused to go. Then comes the passage that portrays the competition between Jesus and the Roman authorities. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? You see, the Pharisees have gone and paired up with the Herodians, those people who were following Herod Antipas and who were colluding with the Roman government, and they have paired up, you know, because when you have an enemy, uh, enemies make friends, right? So the Pharisees and the Herodians have paired up to challenge Jesus. It is important to note here that the divisions within first century Jewish, the Jewish community are varied responses to their dislike for the rule of the Romans. I mean, think about it. The Pharisees' option emphasized the importance of the Torah and obedience to the 613 laws and ritual purity as the means to restore Israel. And in doing so, they were keeping out the riffraff. Then there are the Sadducees and the Herodians who saw that the best way to respond to the Roman government was through collaboration rather than opposition. And then the Essenes who just go off and away, who don't want to confront anybody or anything, but sit out on a hillside away from everything. And then there are the Zealots, mostly in agreement with the Pharisees, But they want to take their government back through armed rebellion. Now, I think it's important that you remember that around the time of Jesus' birth, a census was taken. And the purpose of that census was so that the Roman government could tax the people of Israel. Particularly, it started in the Judean region. In response to that taxation, a rebellion occurred that was led by a man by the name of Judas. Isn't that interesting? He rose up and initiated a revolt. And even though they were quickly struck down by the Roman government, the unrest lasted well into Jesus' life 
his birth, his young life, his teachings, his ministry, throughout his life, this revolt was still in play. So the question as to whether or not to pay taxes was not just one among many issues. It represented a major political problem for the people during Jesus' time. It was the question to Jesus, whose side are you on anyway? Jesus' famous answer to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to give to God what belongs to God was not his way of just shrugging off the question as irrelevant. Instead, it was the notion of giving to God what belongs to God as a deeply political movement. By asking those listening whose image was on the coin, Jesus was calling them to reconsider where they should expect to find God's image. And here's where our lesson today comes into play. Where the important question about the great commandment comes in. You see, Jesus' response created a revolution. Like the zealots, it was directed as a response to the occupation of the Roman government. It was also an affront to religious authorities. But Jesus' answer was not about non-involvement, but about undivided love of God. Undivided love of God. But unlike Judas of Galilee and the Zealots, his loyalty required a new vision, a revolution without swords. So we might say that Jesus was a nonviolent revolutionary, a zealot pacifist. Finally, Jesus asks a closing question of his own stumping his opponents with a biblical conundrum. If the Messiah is the child of David, the descendant of David, then why does David in the psalm call him Lord? In those days, some called their fathers Lord, but not the other way around. The, the son didn't call, the, the, not the other way around. Remember, the authorities have been trying to trip Jesus up all day in one theological trap after another. Here, Jesus gives them a taste of their own medicine. And from that day, they don't ask him any more questions. And when the dialogue stops, relationship is over, and then the relationship with the teacher ends and plans for his death begins. So to love God with heart and soul and mind and your neighbor as yourself was not a matter of following the law. It was political and a matter of life and death. That is not necessarily the case for Christians in the United States today. In other countries where being a Christian is illegal or a minority, it certainly may be. But in our country today, we have depoliticized Jesus by equating following Jesus with political party affiliation. We have made Jesus soft and easy and non-confrontive and, and I, I'm not sure what. I was driving uh, through the neighborhood on my way back from taking Sydney to school this week, and I saw a yard sign that said, Jesus... 2020. 
And I thought, oh, you know, that's not bad. That's not bad at all. Because wouldn't it be great if, if we really had people following in the way of Jesus? And then a few more houses down, there was that same sign, Jesus 2020. And then there was a political sign with a politician's name that said 2020. And I thought, how does that work exactly? How does it work that we make being a particular political party about being right with Jesus? I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. What would it mean for us to follow Jesus in this year of our Lord, 2020? Jesus taught it was about loving God with heart and mind and soul. You know, the great theologian Karl Barth was once asked, kind of like Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment, was asked, what is the greatest theological principle on which you base your stand for Christianity? And you know what he said? Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible told me so. This great mind of theological expertise brought the whole understanding of the Christian faith down into that one children's song. So does Jesus. Jesus quotes the best-known passage in the law of Moses when he said the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Ehad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. But it goes on, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is what Jesus put the whole law and the prophets into, and in so doing becomes the living authority of that teaching. But let's just start with the word Shema, as any good rabbi would do. They would start not just with the word Shema, they would start with the letter S. But I'm not going to do that. Let's just start with the word Shema. It obviously translates in most biblical texts to hear, hear, O Israel, But maybe a better translation for us today is, listen. Listen, people of God. I mean, when was the last time you really listened? When was the last time you really were still for a moment, you made your mind still enough to listen for God to speak? However God will speak through music, through song, through through dance, through creation, through, through prayer... And what are you doing to cultivate your listening to this God who adores you? And then there is this idea of loving neighbor as yourself. Uh, Let's go to the end of that phrase, shall we? As yourself. The implication in this teaching is that we are to love ourselves, which is something I believe many of us don't even pay attention to. And if, because we've been taught not to love ourselves. We've got all kind of reasons not to love ourselves. But if, if we do not love ourselves, how can we love others? How can we possibly 
Love others, neighbor, family, friends, family of choice, much less enemies. What is required of us to love ourselves? And what are we doing to cultivate that kind of generous love? So when Jesus explains that the law and the prophets all hang on these two teachings, these two laws, these two commandments, which he puts together as one, the greatest commandment, Jesus is inviting us to see that we and our neighbors are created in the imago dei, the image of God. Thus, we are challenged to reevaluate our lives, our commitments, and our politics, and to orient them in ways that honor that divine image in others. And let me just remind you that love is not about a feeling, it's about a commitment that is cultivated. It's that simple. It's that hard. So consider this. According to Matthew's teachings, none of the things Jesus is caught up, caught doing and confronted with, from physically trashing the tables in the temple, to arguing the finer points of biblical literacy with the religious authorities, to getting one up on, on those same religious authorities, none of it violates the law of love. So over the course of these last few weeks, we've heard scriptures where Jesus has been questioned repeatedly, all in an attempt to trap him so that he could be arrested. And this now is the final exam. What is the greatest commandment? You know, the Gospel of Matthew begins with a... um, a liturgy of Jesus' lineage with the whole purpose of establishing Jesus as the Messiah, the one who has been prayed for, the one who is the manifestation of the love of God in human form. And here in this passage, Jesus passes the test by saying what the greatest commandment is and being the living presence of that commandment that contains the whole law and the whole prophets. Giving to God what is God's, loving our neighbors as ourselves is a peculiar kind of politics, isn't it? It doesn't fit with anything we do in our world today. And yet it is God's tool to remake the world in God's image It requires us to expect to find God's image in our neighbors, even in our enemies. Nevertheless, knowing how to give God what is God's, how to honor the divine image in others, well, we're not too very good at it, are we? I mean, what does it look like to have an undivided heart, to give an unrestrained love to God, our neighbors, our enemies, and ourselves? Whatever the final outcome of our current political conflicts, the gospel tells us that there's a way to engage in a dialogue about the common good. The gospel tells us that we are to cross the lines of age and race and gender and political party, that we are loving God and neighbor when we can discover that our neighbors are starting to have faces. And that's crucial because 
we don't do well just loving in the abstract. This is God's politics. But the question is, how will we do on our final exam? You know, we're in the habit of putting people into groups. If someone disagrees with us, we tend not to listen very deeply at all, or respectfully, some of us. We assume that the other person is not as smart, perceptive, informed, objective, ethical, faithful as we are. They're deluded because they get their news source from somebody else. We will do anything in our power to avoid listening and taking each other's points seriously. And Jesus knew we will crucify faster than we learn to listen and love. But we have a chance. We have a chance to treat one another as friends, as those who have God's face, the image of God in them. We have a rare opportunity right now in this political climate, in this pandemic climate, where things are being tossed and turned like the person on the ship. We wait for the star to show itself, to bring us peace. Well, friends, the star has already shown itself, and that star is the life of Jesus. And we have this rare opportunity at this time to build something worthwhile and true just and rich, that comes out of our very best selves, our humble, generous, other-oriented, daring, hopeful selves. You see, for Jesus, the whole law and indeed the whole world hang on these two kinds of love. And this means that manifesting such love isn't just the task on our to-do list. It is the underlying, organizing mission of our whole lives. The good news of the gospel this week is that God gives us these two beautiful, powerful kinds of love and empowers us to live them out in ways large and small. The challenge of the gospel is to do so with full commitment, day in and day out, so that our lives embody and proclaim the twofold love of God and neighbor not forgetting the third one, ourselves. So let us listen and let us love. And the real good news today is that in the beginning, God created out of chaos, and God still does. And lucky for us, God grades on a curve. Thanks be to God. Amen.